Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Did that one work? This, this way. Did what work? Oh no! It's started. You're referencing, <laughs> you're referencing pre-recording bits. Yeah, how long did you doing this? I think I was gone the week where you all put it in the declaration of trial of pendants that we can't do that anymore or something. It's a faux pas. Every time I do that, I get yelled at. It's a faux pas. It's just it's just bad form, man. Like No, it's not. I don't appreciate yeah, it. Faux pas is, is French not for bad form. Not in my form. fucking house. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw, people we met, or what was it? Games we played at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I forget where I brought that one up. Maybe during two, episode 200, Oops All Noties. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. Uh, my name is uh, Skid the Marked, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody the Washed, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Wow, I'm the hi- I'm the howler of the highway himself, Havoc Harry. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, my name is Aaron, and did you folks know that a Morton Joe's large adult son is called Rictus Erectus? Yes, I did. Yes, yes. Yeah, I figured did. that one out yes, just today. He so had I'm a baby him, brother who was perfect in every way. That's right. You can find me on Twitter at our, uh, RB, please. What, what was your What was your name? Did you just think you scooped by without coming I'm, up with I'm it? going to be Rictus Erectus. <laughs> oh, okay. His like fucked I'm... up apocalypse name is Aaron Gorsman. Or an even more, <laughs> like, por- like the porn parody version of that. You know what I mean? Ew. What would the Whatever porn parody be. of that be? It's already there. I, uh, yes, uh, Rictus Erectus. I guess you do also have a brother who's perfect in every way. So <laughs> that's true. I, I suppose uh, that's appropriate. Yikes. Fortunately, uh, Unfortunately, he made it out of the womb. But yes, uh, just mm. kidding. Nick, love you. Uh, but still, the doctor did the same thing that the guy that the uh, uh, organ guy does in this movie. We're just like it kind of flaps birth. the body That's around. True. Yeah. Um. Anyway, we have a very special guest joining us for this episode. Natalie Marlin is returning to the show. Natalie, welcome. Hello, hello. I am Natalie. The I did not prepare a name for this bit. Uh, despite you giving me a heads up, uh, that said, I am the one who grabs the sun. There you go. I don't hate you for it. I hate Aaron for it. Just to be clear, there is a division of of. I misread that there. message. And did not. I don't know how you could misread that message at all. It was, uh, it was pretty direct to, and clear. To be fair, it was a thing that Jason and Cody were conveying to me in person last night, so I could see how it might have gotten lost in in that and the, form. And, and then Abby, uh, former guest Abby Phelps, comes up with like all of the names of every dumbass character in this movie: Toast the Knowing, <laughs> Cheeto the Brigade Brigadier, or whatever the hell they call those things. That's why she's Ab- the trivia champ, right? Should, should, because she's just got Abby the, for these, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, we, we, before we actually say the name of this film, which I, I applaud us all for not actually doing just yet, uh, we have to get Aaron to, um, uh, tell us what the movie's actually about. Yeah, we're talking about Mad Max Fury Road. Everybody, Ian, even if you didn't see the title of this, you can probably, probably guess that up. one from the discussion so far. Uh, 2015 film directed by George Miller. Uh, it is the fourth film, uh, in the Mad Max series. Once again, following the character of Max, uh, Rakatansky, Rakastansky, Rakatansky. Rakatansky, uh, this baby. time 
It's not Mark Hardy. Yep. This time played by uh, Tom Hardy uh, as uh, Max navigates a post-apocalyptic desert wasteland. Uh, also starring and joining Max in his journey uh, is Charlize Theron as Furiosa, uh, a lieutenant of a warlord named Amorton Joe, played by Hugh Keyes Baron. Uh, Furiosa betrays Amorton Joe by helping his five wives uh, escape during a routine trip uh, out into the wasteland to retrieve gas and bullets. Um, and Furiosa, the wives, and Max are forced to work together to escape uh, Morton Joe's forces, as well as other bandits that rove the desert. Uh, also of note that I wasn't able to slip into my summaries, Nicholas Holt as Nux, who's a war boy uh, loyal to a Morton Joe. Um, Fury Road was kind of in development hell for like a decade or so, uh, but was a smash hit on release, making quite a profit, earning 10 Academy Award nominations. I think it won six of them, mostly technical categories, but good job, Mad Max. Uh, it has since gone on to be considered one of the best action films of all time. Um, I think we are probably all fans of this film, but we have a, a guest. So, Natalie, Mad Max Fury Road, pretty good? What do you think? It's all right. Thumbs up? It's, it's, all, it's all right. It's no, it's no Beyond Thunderdome. No. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, no, no, I, lo- I love this fucking movie. It's, um, I, I think it's, it's honestly kind of, it's, it, it's kind of quaint now watching this again. Cause I think the last time I had seen this was maybe like three years ago, but there was a time where it was like, I, I, I really want to hear more than anything else of these initial discussions, just kind of like what everybody's sort of like, uh, everybody here who had seen it on release was like, as cause, cause my impression of it was, it was one of those things where it was, I don't know, there are a few movies in, like, my own kind of, like, uh, early adulthood that I feel like were very clearly, like, big sort of, like, moments and and, and things that kind of, like, gripped everybody. It felt like a fever was just, like, possessing everybody who saw them. And that was kind of, like, what it felt like with this one. Uh, I'm pretty sure I saw it, if I remember correctly, a total of, like, at least four or five times in its like initial theatrical run and then like sometimes like afterward whatever it would like play at uh like like the amc in boston when i was there like would bring it back like in 2016 one year and like uh one of the rep theaters i was uh that was there when i was living there would bring it back in 35 one of those times so it's like it's become like kind of just a perpetual staple but it feels to me like um and it was just one of those things where when it came out, uh, and this is also another angle I'm interested in hearing people at, uh, about, I wasn't entirely convinced about this movie, like, at least in the, like, marketing leading up to it. I was, like, I think I was, um, I was never a big fan of Mad Max. I never particularly got the the hype for any of the, the earlier ones, whatever people who had, like, uh, very kind of deep wells of 80s nostalgia would talk about Road Warrior. I'd be like, yeah, no, it's fine it's like solid it's a good like action movie to catch on cable at like 6 p.m on a thursday like i don't i don't necessarily like feel the same sort of affection for it um but i think that uh as when it came out it was one of those things where i was kind of in disbelief that it had the reception that day i'm like i don't i don't know if i buy that and uh like as i'm sure a lot of people who uh saw it in that initial run uh felt like it just kind of bowled me over so hard the first time that i just like i was still like collecting myself and figuring out just like just how much it had like fully taken hold of me Mm -hmm. in like that like second viewing third viewing fourth viewing and it's uh i was saying beforehand it's become this movie that's become almost kind of uh 
a, a bit almost unwieldy to sometimes like come to and rewatch because you you think you have a handle of everything that's going on within. It's kind of incepted the the popular landscape and the the cultural discussion. But I think what does get lost in it is just how efficiently it tells its story in lots of ways that are even in the realm of like blockbuster action filmmaking kind of unconventional. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's it becomes the sort of thing where uh, I was saying before we had started recording, this is like probably watch number like nine or 10 for me. And I'm still catching like new little, new little things that this is doing, whether that's um, just kind of like ways it kind of uh, sets up its payoffs later on or entire little like mini arcs that kind of go very uh, unaddressed. They're not really kind of explicitly brought up, but they're kind of there. And if you're like paying close enough attention to them, you can like notice little things that the movie kind of trusts on you to pick up on. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear everybody else's developing relationships with this movie. That's already kind of become the, the stature that it has in a contemporary yeah. film landscape. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that the marketing like didn't work on you, that it wasn't building hype for you because it was the exact inverse for me. I did see it at release in 2015. Um, I don't think that I had any form of like actual movie media literacy until like my mid late twenties. So the idea that I would go to a movie for anything more than like base entertainment for anything more than, you know, just for anything that would spark imagination or thought was just like, not really, it's a way to pass time. But in college, I took some courses that were about film, that were about, you know, uh, other forms of media literacy. And there we were. This struck at the right time. I was, I think, 21, 22 when this movie came. It must have been 22. Um, and it did. It Like, it had worked. I saw the trailers months beforehand and decided I was going to catch up on the entire Mad Max series. So I, I bought the movies. I watched the first three a few times and really enjoyed them and felt I was ready for this. I then found that I really wasn't. It was it was crazy how well the, the marketing had worked. It pulled me in on a series I knew nothing about. And then sort of like you in ways sort of like shattered what I was really looking for in watching a movie. I mean, I'm sure that you had something uh, more akin to media literacy before I did. But the point being that we had that I had like very little uh, like it worked on enough levels of me like looking for something critically and sort of having a, a great time of the movies. It found a midway point between those two things and then almost I, I want to say like one hand led to the other almost immediately in terms of like this movie uh, and a lot of the, you know, if you research what was going on at the time and sort of the like conversation around it um, at that time, I feel like it was a, one of the first times that I ever saw and one of the most recent times where sort of like the, for, for lack of a better term, like uh, cinephile circles and just people who really love great fast action movies sort of like came together in ways and like were enabled by the internet and conversations of Phil Twitter, et cetera, who to really like supercharge the discourse, supercharge like the the critical conversation around this to really put it on like a high blast. It, it just screamed for, for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months and was rewarded with a number of technical Oscars, et cetera. Um, and I feel like by that point it was pretty well saturated. Like the conversation, what is, what more is there to say about this movie? And I don't know that I had seen that in a modern movie, uh, up to that point in my life where now it's like, we're talking about Mad Max Fury Road. What the fuck do we say about that? That hasn't already been said because everybody who's been wanting to talk about movies in the last 20 years, everybody who developed media, media literacy at the same pace I did or around the same time I died or around with the same like totems that I did has that has something to contribute or feels like, you know, they have like, I don't know that I've ever talked to anybody about this movie who feels like they just don't have anything to say about it. It stimulates something in almost everybody. For me, I mean, obviously, 
my personal experience is that I loved it off the bat. I have really spent a lot of time thinking about it again, like you, Natalie, probably watched it a dozen times since then in a number of different formats. This was one of my favorites so far. It currently occupies the only uh, movie that actually fits on my letterboxed favorites list, which is part bit, part like um, sincere. I don't know anything else that I would put up against the, that movie and that wouldn't look completely strange but also i know that cody doesn't like that it's my only movie there so we're gonna see how long well, now i'm rolling my eyes because the, the audacity of you to say it's only part bit come on <laughs> it's, okay you. if it's 99 that's still part it's a big part but it's a part um i see too many hands up to keep going but just suffice to say i'm in love with this movie i can't wait to talk about it i, I this is you know if this is time number 13 to watch it can't wait for time number 14 Truly. Yeah. And um, no, Jason and, and Natalie as well, like your backgrounds, um, like bits and pieces of your backgrounds, I think play uh, like favorably and and somewhat against mine in that, like Jason, you're talking about media literacy. You know, I, I came at this movie hot off the heels of uh, a highly coveted um, film studies major uh, from a, from a, a big 10 public university, uh, which, you know, like I said, highly decorated uh, occasion. So like I, I, I came into this wanting to, I think there was a part of me that wanted to like, you know, reconcile this right away and make sense of it. And like, maybe put it into in a, a like a sort of box that I could understand it more conveniently. And that just um, obviously did not happen because this movie is unlike, you know, any other movie that's been made. And so like what the first, even couple times I watched it, I, I felt myself like I, I knew this was something I just couldn't quite like articulate what it was. Um, at least just like within my own inner mechanisms of just like, you know, film hierarchies, like, like, what do I, what do I make of this, of this, um, of this motion picture? It's, it's constantly moving. It is, it is like a big set piece. There are like, breaks in between where like great things happen there's that awesome you know world building that happens and i think one of the 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 biggest um inroads hey um for me like getting a better sense of this movie is the fact that i think natalie like you were touching on this movie doesn't it doesn't talk down to you um i never felt like i was being talked down to the the sort of world building and you know universe outside of the confines of the frame was very like hey all of these things are here for you to pick up on if not this you know one viewing that you're currently in then like maybe when you revisit next time you'll you pick up more there's there's so much of that there and i think all of that you know now i'm at a point where this this movie feels it, it's so i feel like i zoomed past the the stage where i'm just blown away by this movie like before i was sort of you know i i'm like lukewarm i'm generally positive on it but it's not like blowing me away and i zoomed right past it to the point where this feels like a very it just feels like like an old friend it feels like a very reliable or it's it's death taxes in mad max fury road it's just like a, there we go like a, there an we old, go an, an old buddy i can see at the end of the day so no i'm i'm very positive on this movie that was not always the case and i'm i'm excited to see what the the you know other stages of my journey with this the movie will be as a, as i travel throughout life i uh just to throw kind of my hat in the ring here i uh I was also kind of, I think, pretty hesitant, uh, kind of leading up to this movie, maybe in the same way that Natalie was. I did grow up with Mad Max, um, at least as like one of the, at least The Road Warrior is one of those movies that my dad would always kind of just like, yeah, The Road Warrior, you know. Um, and I don't know. I always like liked it uh, growing up. Um, it was always like a very Star Wars-esque, just kind of like sci-fi adventure romp that I kind of dug. Um I was very hesitant, I think, for Fury Road, though, as I think just like the idea of this kind of like 
reboot after all that time with like a new actor. Not that I was like a big Mel Gibson apologist, but like that, that kind of general idea, I think kind of struck me uh, uh, is wrong, I think. And that, that feels like slightly before other films started to kind of do that in a way. Right. Um, I think even on release, the first time I saw it in theaters, it, I, recognize it is a great film but i think a few things left me like slightly sour on it um things that i've kind of come around on i think the first was like saw it in 3d and i think the 3d stuff in this film does work but not in 3d uh i remember the 3d experience being pretty bad um but a lot of the things that were pretty bad now kind of now that they're not like coming straight at my face, uh, I kind of have this campy quality, which I really dig like the steering wheel flying at the screen that everybody complains about at the end of the film, I think like totally works on like an Iron Maiden album cover kind of way. Yeah. The guitar doofs guitar guitar coming toward the front. It's so good. It it's, it's totally like it's, it's Iron Maiden album cover, but like from that eighties period when they were doing like CGI album covers, like dance of death era, Iron Maiden. Um, and I, I kind of have learned to, to dig that now. Um, and I guess the other thing is that like in the theater, I think that just like not being able to like really understand just how like economical this film is with its storytelling and with its editing and with its action, I think kind of made me feel like there should have been another action sequence or another act or something. Um, it just, I think that was just me being wrong about it. So like my first viewing was like, this is a good movie, but there's something a little off here. And then like every other time I watched it, I was like, Oh no, this is, this is a kind of a, a perfect movie, frankly. Um, yes, so yeah, you I've, said I've also, it. God, I've been waiting I mean, for somebody else to think of this there's as There's like one or two movie. things, only but for a it's second. like, yes, it's, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that I can sort of round out our experiences. I, uh, was similar to Natalie and Aaron. Um, I actually consider this movie one of the better, like, cynicism breakers of my sort of development with movies, which I was really excited about because I think, Jason, you said you were 22. I would have been like 23. So, like, pretty recently out of college. And, like, uh, I, I had seen Mad Max's similarly to Natalie just sort of on TV. I didn't have, like, a lot of, like, allegiance for it but um i was very cynical about the idea of reboots um i was very sort of like in my sort of like arrogant 23 year old way um like pretty down on like contemporary movies in general uh especially because like a lot of the um like a a lot of the the hype around the movie even when it was first coming out was like oh dude it's so crazy you have to see that. And I was like, yeah, but like people said that about like the dark Knight, right? They were like, oh yeah, those action scenes are so crazy. So I was like, there's no bar for that, especially for someone who, as I thought had seen some like actual good movies. (laughs) Right. I was like, okay, but like I've seen the, the fucking like French connection or something. Right. So like, what are you going to do for me? Modern movie. Um, and then me and uh, my girlfriend at the time saw it on like a long weekend at my grandparents, which is a little town in central Wisconsin. We went like on a lark in the middle of the afternoon because we didn't have anything to do. And I walked out like shaking. Right. It was like it wasn't even like I wasn't even blown away in terms of like, oh, this is a cinematic masterpiece. I was like, I want to smoke a cigarette. You know, like I had never like, but it, but it was like, this is like, it, it goes so Did fucking you have sex? hard. Is that the, is that the <laughs> I, tangent story, tangent but, story, but, stay oh, yeah. focused. Uh, but, um, and ever since then, it was sort of like, it was like one of the great movies for me to be like, oh, I don't know what, what the fuck I'm talking about. Like, I can still be surprised 
and impressed and blown away by contemporary movies. Um, I still like now that I've, I know a little bit uh, marginally more about movies. I still think this movie is kind of a miracle <laughs> that it happened, that it looks the way it looks, that it is the way it is. Um, and uh, ever since I think, I think I get something new out of it every time I see it. Um, I just watched it last night for the first time in a long time. I think I like it more now than I ever have. Um, the politics of this movie, if it aged eerily well, um, not just in the obvious ways that like Immortan Joe is like a, like he feels like an analog for Trump, except that this movie came out in 2015, but also just like the whole, like this movie's idea and conception of redemption and the way that it, uh, sort of departs from this very, like, keep your hands clean version of, uh, what it means to be a good person, uh, really sings for me, especially now, especially in the sense that it's like both a climate change movie and a movie about fighting fascism. Both of those, like this movie's answer to that is that like, there's no running from the fight and actually like being Antifa and like killing people like Immortan Joe does not make you the same as them. <laughs> and it's actually good to do that. And it's like, maybe that's a low bar for movies, but for me, like to watch something like that and, and for Furiosa to realize like, Oh, like, I'm not a monster. Like I can go back and do these things and it doesn't make me a bad person. Right. Like I really like that. There's something really inspiring about that. Um, that, that is always really sung for me in this movie. Um, so yeah, just like on all levels, I guess, like I even think that like, I think maybe the first time I saw this movie, I thought that the second act, which is like very blue, the very blue second act of this movie was maybe a low point. Um, now I don't feel that way at all. Uh, I think it's like incredibly well like done. There's not a single like ounce of wasted movie in this movie. Um, like even like I, I keep thinking about even like there's like one like sort of standard hand to hand fight sequence right between Furiosa and Mad Max at the beginning. And even that fight scene is better than any fight scene in any other movie. And like that's like definitely the most forgettable fight scene in this movie, the most for forgettable action sequence. And it's like it still beats the shit out of every other movie. And so like, I don't know. It's like even at its lowest, like this movie is like it's so um like confident it it just like there's it how did they like know that it was going to work out this way i guess is is what i want to know about this yeah. movie because it's like how do you make something that looks this confident and like pull it off it's like a moonshot right so yeah i think that i just like i i think this movie is like a modern marvel um and i i really love returning to it every time yeah, I, I want to jump off of a lot of the stuff that you were talking about, Harry, especially, because I think that um, my own sort of skepticism, I think, comes from a very similar point where it was like, when I when it came out, I was 21, I was like nearing the end of a film program that I was in. So I like, I had that degree of media, media literacy, but it was also like, I was definitely the kind of like, uh, cynic when it came to IP, where it was like, uh albeit not nearly as much as I am now for a number of reasons, but um, the the idea of like this being kind of like a, a, a pseudo lega sequel uh, with an entirely new cast and like three decades removed and it was being touted specifically as this kind of like this awe-inspiring like stunt driving spectacle i was like i don't really know how i feel about that that's not really like what i go to movies for that's not really particularly a thing that i'm like invested in like obviously i i'm not beyond that i'm not like above that but it was also just not really my particular thing and i i felt 
I couldn't help but feel a twinge of just, I don't know if this is going to work out as like a full movie sort of thing. Um, and then I think the thing that really kind of like stunned me the more that I've watched it and the more that I've kind of like unpacked it is that it doesn't skimp on that, but it does feel uh, just like an incredibly, like probably the most efficient way you could do a movie like this in terms of narrative progression and in terms of the the different little movements that it takes. Um, I think one of the key things is that obviously the kind of like core conceit of the movie, once it starts going at this extended, like, car chase that is happening throughout the entire movie between these same parties and you have our heroes in the one vehicle basically all through the entire two-hour movie is the one constant but it also there's so many like little miniature things and little kinds of like small little power struggles little dilemmas that pop up that uh all kind of feel like they're it feels like a well-oiled machine is I guess the the way that I want to put this is that it like everything kind of feels not necessarily like it's calling too much attention to itself, but it all kind of helps the perpetual motion machine just kind of keep moving. It's um, it becomes the kind of thing where it's like the, the fight scene that you were mentioning, Harry, the hand to hand. One of the things that really works about that is you have like essentially all these different like groups of people who have their own sort of like miniature motivations. And they're, they're very precisely placed in the kind of choreography of the scene and and the blocking. Um, And there are these like little moving pieces. So there's like a a water fountain that's going off. There's a gun that doesn't work. Uh, There's a gun stashed in the the tanker that does work. And then, then the bullets are knocked out of it and have to be put back in. And so there's like, even in that fight scene, which lasts maybe like two or three minutes, there are a bunch of little moving pieces that all feel vital in terms of like the kind of like elegant motion of the thing, but they don't get lost in the shuffle because they're so clearly telegraphed in terms of like, where they are, how they pop up, uh, the the gun that doesn't work particularly. You see Max try to fire it earlier in the scene to blow Nux's arm off, and it doesn't work. So when Furiosa grabs it, you like you, the the little like smart ass in your brain is like, ah, I know what's going to happen here. Um, but um, I don't know that, that that to me is like one of the things that always kind of astounds me rewatching this again is that for a two hour movie, it just it doesn't feel like there's a single wasted minute. Every single time I come back to this, I feel like there's going, I constantly have a sense in the back of my head, like, is there going to be something I could like nitpick and pull apart in terms of like, this doesn't really have any narrative function, but like the reverse kind of happens where I kind of keep figuring out little things that I kind of intuitively picked up on uh, that the movie doesn't really kind of telegraph or announce, but I don't notice how the wheels have been moving because I've been so swept up in it. Uh, to, mm-hmm. to give an example, um, the one thing that I picked up on just like last night's viewing uh, at the Trilon, um, the there's the whole thing where... Uh, I basically break the movie into four different sections because like basically every half hour, there's like an extended action section that then gets like broken up and there's like a little bit of a passage of time. Um, But like the, the second of those uh, when they're going through the pass and uh, Ankara uh, falls and rolls under the wheels, um, there's a bit that is Miller and uh, Searle and like the entire team are like just so 
smart about how they uh, entrust the viewer to pick up on this. There's like maybe a two or three second shot of the wheel of the vehicle getting yanked away, like the steering wheel. And it becomes something that never, they never talk about. They never, they're never like, Oh no, we need to replace the steering wheel. It never becomes like a like big glaring issue. They, they end up kind of making their makeshift steering wheel. And then when Max kills the bullet farmer, like a full, like half hour later, he's like carrying a steering wheel back from the vehicle and puts it in. And it's just one of those things where I'd always like, seen part a and part b but in the back of my mind i never really like thought about how that's its own kind of like subtle little kind of like conflict that the movie throws at you and it 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 knows that you're smart enough to pick up on it and it knows that that's not necessarily it, it it's it doesn't it doesn't treat the viewer as dumb it treats them as we're gonna go along with this you're going to be so swept up in this that you're going to take all of this as it is as we throw it at you and You'll you'll just kind of you'll pick up the pieces, but the pieces are all there if you do want to piece it together. Yeah, I mean, it is a movie that works on that level of like your monkey brain will watch it and know this is exciting, this is moving, this is going on. These are the roles that the characters occupy, and it's also like, oh yeah, even if you forgot that we tore away the steering wheel earlier, or that Nux lost his boot, or that Max's car is currently being used by the War Boys, we'll call it back to that, and it will feel exactly like you will remember even though you maybe didn't notice in the moment, it just works. I think at that level, the other, like what you're saying, I'm so glad you brought up those little moments because when I was watching this movie again, you know, for the umpteenth time, um, this time, like all that was going through my mind was, okay, I've seen it and I've appreciated the big moments. I've appreciated how wild it can be, what everybody talks about, how it's just a tour de force, how it never stops. I I agree with all of that, but what I was watching for this time and what I think I might appreciate even more is just the moments when it like, it's a movie known for not really explaining a whole lot. It's the world building concept of, you know, show, don't tell, just show how these pieces interact, not necessarily why they exist. Um, and then, you know, let people piece it together over the two hours and one minute this, that, the movie, that this movie takes. And I was trying to look at what, I guess, how it spends its time uh, when it does have something to explain, when it's like, we need to know why Joe is following them. We need to know why it's important that Splendid Ankharad is like now dead. We need to explain why, you know, who the Vuvalini are and what the green place is and stuff with these questions that we've been putting off for a long time, they're both paced like appropriately so that we don't have Max and Furiosa on the way to the green place, explaining what the green place is like, at least not at length, like in, uh, metaphors and symbolism and the concept of redemption and a place where I came from. And then only once it's like, once we've got a couple more action scenes under our belt, once we've got a little bit more of that tension built, then we can tell then we can say this place used to be green. I am, you know, from Mary Jobasa of the many mothers, all that kind of stuff, like revealing that in chunks where it feels appropriate. And I think that's why like it does not pass through your brain as like, Oh, there's this large period of slowness. There's this large, like, you know, trough in the movie. And I think that's why, like Harry said, upon first or second viewing the blue scene and blue segment, which like you could call that an act, but it's kind of like, like the shortest act, the like quickest portion of the movie, probably um, why that feels like it's maybe a low point is because we are like explaining a lot uh, after we kill the bullet farmer. We are like going through the motivations moment. We're not showing as much on screen of the action. Um, I just really loved how it brings those moments. It portions them out appropriately throughout the movie. Uh, and when it does, it's just constantly driving home that idea of, you know, one more step, survival you're with something is within reach uh we have a little bit more motivation to go on and to continue the story and to pull the narrative where it needs to be um or but even like in microcosm like going back to near the beginning of the movie where uh let's see the setup is that max is trying to drive the truck away trying to drive the war rig away and he doesn't know the sequence to keep it running so it stalls on him um 
that whole scene, Joe's war party army is like zooming in the background just toward them. They're, you know, a mile away or whatever, but they are coming. We never get a shot back to the war party that's like, oh, they're still coming. Like the bad guy, like I was thinking in any other movie, there'd be, yeah, (laughs) Cody's mimicking people running, but like literally it'd be, it'd be like, you'd get a shot of the inside of the vehicle and, and, uh, you know, Joe looking really angry behind the wheel or some more war boys like uh, hooting and hollering and witnessing. In this, it's just like, we're going to stick with these characters because you need to recognize that Max is kind of helpless here. You need to recognize that Furiosa is under the gun, that nobody is in an ideal position right now. Nobody has like leverage per se over the other in any meaningful way. Let's stick with this one scene, with this set that is the war rig and milk that for all the tension we can, because this is going to be your motivation to follow them and to know Max's role in this, why he's going to keep a gun on everybody, why Furiosa can't necessarily be trusted why the whole thing in the past with the other war band is going to be so dramatically tense and why it's going to be feel so like high strung despite the scene only lasting like 45 seconds. I don't know. It, it's very economical, which like that's not a new take, but I was just struck this time in particular at how for all those high highs and constant, you know, like heart beating tension that goes on, even the moments where it does have to say, okay, we're going to level with you. We're going to explain that there was a deal with this war band. We're going to explain that the green place was a place where we could, you know, that used to exist. Um, We're going to like tell you why Joe is uh, upset that this is like his last, potentially his last chance for an heir. Even when those moments do happen to me, they've never felt like, like the trough, like the moment that stops the movie, but they are distinct from that. They are well-paced in that. And I think they're part of what keeps the momentum going. Yeah, I uh economical is a good way to put it. It's sort of ironic to characterize the movie this way, uh, given what the movie is, but it's a very it's not a chaotic movie at all, right? Like I keep thinking about why, despite being basically a two-hour action sequence and me having ADHD, uh, I never get sort of like that overwhelmed, like washing over you feeling of just sort of like at a certain point I'm just watching explosions. Um and a big part of that is is what Natalie had said, where It reminds me a lot of like the best scenes in like Indiana Jones or something where like within a scene, the props have arcs, right? Like like the characters, as much as the characters, every like individual tool has an arc and a part to play, right? Like the golden idol in Indiana Jones, you know that like that's going to be used seven different ways, right? Um, The Furiosa scene, the original one the fight is a really good example because of like Max's chain, uh, his mask, the guns, but every scene works that way. Right. We're like, I'm thinking about like, even in the, the climactic final sort of run on the Citadel, um, they introduce the guns, right? Like they have the girls in the back seat, like loading the guns. Uh, Zoe Kravitz's character says like, we can fire this one three times. We can fire this one 26 times. You can track each individual gun in those scenes. You know where they are. You know what they're being used for. You can do that for every individual character in moment it's like watching ballet right we're like like the 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 background dancers like have parts to play and they're going through their own motions and like fulfilling their own roles right like like fucking nux's partner has his own arc where he dies right it's like the movie makes time for every one of those moments um even if the character in question doesn't even have a name right like like max has a fight with the guitar guy right like and so, like, there is this incredible elegance of construction to each of these scenes. Um, and, like, not to be too sort of universe brain about it, but I, I really do wonder if there's something about, like, the fact that it's so practical that creates something like that, where it's like, oh, like, the fact that we put together this big sniper rifle gun means that, like, well, god damn it, this, this is a character now. 
right? Like this thing that Furiosa uses, like we're going to give it a character arc. And it, it does, right? Like, and so does Max's mask and so does Max's chain, right? Like, I couldn't believe, like, I, I remembered it was coming, but like, when Max saves, uh, Furiosa's life at the end by hooking his blood bag back up into her, but, but payoffs like that have been happening throughout the movie, right? With every gun and every side character and every, like, action moment. Um, because there's, there's so much to follow that, like, it never feels chaotic because you're, um, like you, you had said, Jason, your monkey brain, it's like jumping from um, point to point where it's like uh, whatever the um, the focus of the camera is at that point, that your brain fills in the entire narrative of that, right? So like when you see, oh, that's car F or whatever throwing these javelins, you immediately remember everything that that car has done and its place within the larger sequence. And you feel that way, or at least I felt that way for literally every single thing in this scene. And it's like, what an incredible departure from most contemporary action sequences, which as a rule, try to do the opposite, right? Like as a rule, they tried to obfuscate and sort of create chaos so that you can't really follow the choreography, um, both because they want to sort of like suggest chaos and because it's way easier to do it that way, right? So like, it's, it's really like, it's it's this wild thing where it's an action movie that arrives at great action by taking like the opposite approach to modern ap- action movies where it's just like, hey, like we're going to like, really, really choreograph the shit out of this and make sure everything is clear and everything seems like it's happening in real time, right? Um, I have, it's one of those things where I can't remember who said this, but uh, one director was like, watching Mad Max Fury Road scared the shit out of me because I realized I had no idea how it was made, <laughs> right? And like, that's how I feel too. <laughs> we're like, you watch it and it's like, how the fuck did they do that? Like, uh, you may, be, you may be thinking of uh, the, the, the famous Soderbergh quote, which is, uh, right. I don't, I don't know how they're not still shooting that movie and how no one died. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Speaking of economy, uh, going along with the other points that y'all have been making about this movie being like really economical in ways that are not necessarily like conventional or or like intuitive on the surface. Um, and I guess I, I kind of want to go back back to that really awesome um, like hand to hand combat fight um and like the the fir- end of the first act beginning of the second act um it's a great fight and like I, we got to it eventually i forget who said it at this point but the the fact that along with all of these um parties competing with one another there is just that sense in the background of you know hey a morton joe's caravan is coming there is like there's a clock on this nestled in the background and the fact that we didn't need to you know we didn't need a camera rapidly cutting back and forth like to a morton joe's you know growling face going like here i'm I'm coming uh that's my morton joe impression um but the fact that this movie like from the top and i was i was paying closer attention uh, attention to at this point the like the function of the opening sequence uh before the actual title drops of just like what what exactly is this scene doing where um max gets gets captured and we see kind of the the inner layer and he's um running around a little bit and then boom title and it's this tone setting up front that like we're we're not only are we going to be just running uh the entire movie but we're also going to be like out running and it's this this combination of um like direction and movement and urgency that just that drives all of this like and like again it's it's 
nestled in the background and that paired with the um i think it's max who says it at some point i can't remember the exact scene or, or narration or whatever but um just like everything coming down to to one instinct and that's to survive and like by proxy anything that we see um here or experience for the rest of the movie is just um like about the survival of max and this group of people and you know there's not that doesn't necessarily lend itself to you know hearing conversations in the car just like hi i'm imperator furiosa this is my life story we're going to get a prequel movie about that it's going to star my favorite alien it's going to be great um but we don't get that in this movie which is which is totally fine um we do get conversations from um what's uh, her name riley keo's character capable, uh, capable yeah, about like Nux's humanity and things like that. Things that are, you know, it again, an extension of the sort of greater conversation of survival and like salvation and, and humanity, which uh, I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I think even more so this time around. So that's, yeah, I don't know, just a, a, a few more words to this movie's credit about like being economical, putting energy and resources into like the spectacle component and then just planting good seeds early on to, um, you know, make for a movie that makes sense and pairs well with that spectacle um, so that we don't have to think, you know, more than we have to. Yeah. Uh, at risk of diverging off into a couple of different things, but uh, this is the, the code, the Cody Narvison touch is setting me up for multiple different balls at the same time. Um, but uh, this, this, um, I, there are a couple of things I want to bounce off of. Uh, I'll get to the one that I had on my mind during an earlier part of the conversation later, but uh, since this was one of the most imminent things you brought up, uh, I do really want to dig into specifically that opening sequence because it does, um, I think, get to a sort of thing that uh, I believe, um, Jason, you were talking about was a, a point of discussion when we exited last night, which is specifically the kind of look of the film in some scenes and the, this idea of there being these uh, almost kind of bits of action where it almost kind of looks like the frames are kind of being speed ramped to a certain degree and i think this is the opening span especially is the the part of the movie that i think most gets at this and to me especially with the fact that you've got all these basically like different war boy goons chasing after max and they look almost kind of like 1920s ish ghouls and like a like one of these movies it almost feels like one of the things, the prime instincts I think about when I think about this movie, and part of why I think it has always landed with me in a way that like contemporary action movies often don't, is that sometimes it just kind of has a very clear uh, sense of being indebted to like silent film in terms of just its motion and the way things are moving, the way pieces are moving, the ways that it's conveying its visual information, uh, the emphasis on stunt work, even like the, I think of the bit in the opening where it's uh, all of the, the different war boys like bursting forth from this like singular door and they're all trying to grab Max and one of them grabs onto his leg and falls off. And it, it, it feels very Buster Keaton ish in a way yeah, um, yeah. that, uh, and I've, I've like long since thought about, uh, kind of like the, the ways that, um, and, and this is where we get to like the kind of like, uh, dueling impulses of the things I'm going to say. I've long thought that this is a movie where we've been talking a lot about all these kinds of, uh, ways in which the movie kind of conveys these little bits of information piecemeal and is, uh, very sort of economical about how it does things. But I think one of the ways that it like really kind of excels there is the fact that there's so much being visually conveyed in a way that I think like if there were like score track only like cut of this movie, I think you would be able to get at least a sizable portion of like 
all the information that it's throwing at you, at least in terms of motivation, propulsion, momentum, uh, in a way that like few movies from this particular era that could be put in conversation with this, like really could. Uh, that said, one of the other things that I do just kind of really particularly like about this movie is, uh, I think one of the common sort of things that you get up on when you um, are thinking about just kind of a dystopian movie or a movie that kind of is in this uh, a different kind of social milieu uh, that is full of these like new constructions that are somewhat familiar to a viewer, but uh, it's an entire world of its own fabrication um, is that you kind of run up against this like common storytellers problem, which is how am I going to explain all of these things? How am I going to get this across to a viewer? How am I going to explain all these like concepts, the ways that the characters are talking about things. Um, and the, the thing that I've always really liked about this movie is that its solution to that is to just not really stop to explain anything. It fully it just like immerses moving. you. It keeps it, moving. It fully immerses you in the kinds of ways that the characters are describing the things that like the, the, the different parts of their social fabric, the different things that make up their own kind of weird little like broken civilization. And it's, it's, it becomes a sort of thing where like linguistically the movie fascinates me because it it's working almost entirely in its own sort of language where it is, borrowing very familiar words from our own kind of like lexicon but it's they're they're tweaked slightly and there are like little things that like when you first hear them they sound a little foreign but by the time that they come up like the third or fourth way in a similar context you like understand it like uh like right in the 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 first like opening montage you hear somebody say i've become half-life and you're like well what does that mean and then you've like by the time the war boys uh are introduced and you have this whole thing about like oh half-life is essentially like anemic in this 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 landscape Mm -hmm. somebody who is essentially can't survive on their own without like somebody else's blood to function it becomes the sort of thing where as it gets repeated you're like ah i can i can pick up on that i know that uh and there's like any number of those there's like as we mentioned the green place which i think stands out because um because of the movie's color scheme which i would love to talk about in some fashion or another but like um like the the thing in the opening that's like jarring especially is that the first kind of sight of green you get is when like max is peering through those grates at the beginning and you like see the little peaks of green there but then for the rest of the movie you're just kind of without it and so you you almost kind of you understand the need to search for this even if you're not necessarily sure why the characters are searching for it and it's the the movie is like again so like at risk of being repetitive it's so intelligent about doling out this information and really kind of like trusting you to pick up on it in a way that i i think there there really is like something instructive to be said about pretty much everything the movie is doing in like a narrative sense and a visual sense that I think it, it it's, I don't know. It, it's just something that like endlessly fascinates me. I can like pick apart a single element of the film and be like, if the film had leaned into this one singular element, it would already be noteworthy, but it's doing all of these simultaneous things that should clash against each other, but almost kind of like make it more harmonious. Yeah. It, it's, kind of your last sentence there is like kind of kind of making the point that I was just going to make, which is like, it's not just like a single individual element. It's like, when you look at this film, there is, I mean, we've been saying like an economic way of thinking about this or like a smart way, but it's like, it is very smart, but it is also very carefully done and with like thought and consideration and like effort put into it that I think that what you see in a lot of modern blockbusters is kind of 
shortcuts being taken, often for for maybe practical reasons, sometimes maybe not. Um, but Mad Max Fury Road, like every single aspect of this film has like, if you look at the world building, if you look at the kind of effective, like Chekhov's gun style action scenes that Harry was talking about, where a gun will like change states over action scenes, right? It has this many bullets, the clip is out of the gun, the clip is back in the gun, now we're out of bullets, like every single thing will like change and require like a certain level of like thought, uh, not only from people making the film, but also from the audience um, that is like so impressive and like really makes me like want to demand this from like every action scene. Like the, the thing here is not that like Mad Max Free Road is like the best movie ever made or like the best action film. And, it like, is though. You know, feel free to argue that, right? But like it, it is doing stuff that I, I think we should just kind of demand more from uh, modern blockbusters from films that ha- are going through this rigid studio process that that have all this work put into them um, and have this gigantic like inflated budget. I think we should demand this kind of smart storytelling, this kind of smart ways of like creating action scenes. Um, even if like you know, if you read about how like George Miller um, did certain stuff within the film to like create that feeling of uh, this kind of you know this kind of quick moving feeling and like. How does he create a, a movie that's edited in this fashion that never really like lets up after it gets going? And how do you keep the audience like engaged? There's a lot of things that he did. So like one of them is like he he uh, told the the cinematographer to like very often put the the focus of a shot like directly in the center for like the whole movie, um, so that the audience does not need to search around. Because in many of these scenes, the audience does not have the time to look around for what they're supposed to be looking at in the scene. Um, similarly. There's like so many shots in this film that, as you mentioned, like change frame rates, like not much of this film is like in a standard uh, frame mm-hmm. rate. A lot of it is like changed up uh, to kind of extend a scene or to shorten a scene so that the audience, uh, you know, has the time that they need to in order to like kind of take stock of what is actually happening uh, and then like, you know, be able to like carry on with what's happening. Um, and like that stuff is like so impressive. It's not even talking about like the practical effects, which are so well done. It's like this movie makes me like kind of, it's like, if, if you're not going to do this, then I want you to be RRR. And if you're not going to be one of those two, then I don't want to watch your accident movie anymore. It's like be super efficient and effective or give me just like, or sell it in some other way. But I'm like, yeah. I'm sick of movies that don't do either. Or, or just uh, like, to be honest. Right. Like, I think what you're getting at, and it's such a good point is like, it's a movie that wants to be a movie, right? It's like, Oh, like this primarily communicates its meaning through visuals, which is like somehow a thing that like movies don't really do that much anymore. Like yes. everybody always talks about like Westerns. Right. And so like the comparison to the Western has been diluted, but like, the way in which Mad Max is like truly sort of a neo-Western is that like, like the original sort of like Sergio Leone movies, right? Like dialogue is almost perfunctory, right? Um, like you had said, Natalie, like you could make a cut of this movie that was silent uh, successfully. And it's because um, like the primary way that Miller wants to communicate with his audience is through visuals. Like he wants the visual metaphors on the screen to be communicating the story and what we need to know. That's why color is so important, right? Like that's why the green happens where it happens. That's why the, uh, 
the action is as fluid and clear as it is, is because the storytelling is actually happening visually, um, which is more than a lot of action movies can say in kind of a weird, annoying way these days, right? Um, even to a thematic level, right? Like, I, I think a lot about the, the green, right? Like, I think it's so important that you see green at the very beginning of this movie and you expect to see it when they arrive at their destination and we don't get it. And then you see it again at the end, right? It's like, the whole theme is about this movie and what it means to survive is that you have to stop running, right? That you have to return. So like the symbolic sort of return to the beginning of the movie is also like a literal return to like the filmic Mm -hmm. beginning of the movie, right? Like a return to the colors that we had seen established at the beginning, but they're recontextualized by the journey that we've been on. Right. And like all of that is communicated again, primarily through the visuals with all of the other, the, the dialogue and the and the acting and the score sort of supplementing that communication style, which again, it's like, is something that we should demand from movies, but that often doesn't happen, right? Like often movies will use visuals in the sort of secondary way that another form or medium might, um, instead of sort of relying on them this way. And like, I'm not saying every movie needs to do it, right? Like, I think that like, uh, it requires in some ways a simple story like this one, like that, that's about emotional impact. But, um, you're right, Aaron, in the sense that it's like, it's the sort of movie that like, it does such a good job of training you that like by the end of the movie, you don't understand why, or it's like you are remembering something you forgot, right? About like how to make really great economic and smart uh, visual sort of um, meaning. I'm not going to take away from your point, Aaron. I, I was just more or less going to add color yeah. to this. So you can, no, you can feel free ahead. to jump in. I want to a sec. Like it, everything yeah. that we're saying here sings with what, like one of my main points about the movie is that it does like, I, I even interrupted Natalie to say it, that like, it does not stop. It just keeps going. Like, and Cody pointed that out last night, right after the movies, like that, like there are no, real breaks on this movie it slows sometimes i I mean that like me i mean that on like three different levels i mean like literally the visually it just does not stop it's an action movie so there's a lot of motion and commotion going on uh two is that it like passes up no opportunity to bombard you with new information and doesn't take the time to explain any of that usually again we've already talked about the world building but i think it's like materially important to your experience of watching the movie not just like oh that made me think or that was cool but like actually for the flow of the movie and then three is like it is not content to stop the story for almost anything uh, except for that one moment with Furiosa where she realizes that the green place doesn't exist, that she has to have her uh, moment of tragedy in the in the desert. And then we keep moving. Them. Like, I don't know that I've ever seen a movie that just chokes the narrative so fucking efficiently and effectively and still moves things forward. Anyway. I, no, I was just going to say that uh, uh, a bunch of people have brought up the idea of like a silent cut of this film, which is something that George Miller did want to do. I mean, so there was the there's the black and white version. What the shiny and chrome? Is that it? Uh, version? Black which and I, chrome. I have not Sorry, seen. I was so fast to Bla- click. I'm just excited. I was so fast <laughs> to like, fucking click the unmute button that actually, I turned off my goddamn uh, camera. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, there, there's that version, of course, uh, Miller originally also did want to do kind of alongside that, like a, a silent film version that would just have the score. Um, and I, I mean, it, it's uh, like, if you like read any interviews with him, like three years after this film came out, it's just him like talking up what he's going to do next. Like kind of like in a James Cameron avatar style, like I got three sequels written. I got, and it's <laughs> like, well, okay. All right. But, um, but, uh, yes, you could absolutely make this as a silent film. It would like work per- you there would be like frankly kind of nothing that you would miss um and it's like 
yeah, smart, well-made film. Big um, words. So, yeah. Uh, something that uh, I did want to get to that um, to, to, to jump off of Jason's idea that the film is like constantly moving is that uh, to, not to bring this entire conversation back to where we, where we started, like Harry was <laughs> describing with the film itself. Uh, but uh, in terms of like the little miniature motions, I think a lesser, even a lesser film in this vein would like be having all of these like, different things that it were and like to be fair like a film that were like had all this like visual element and the narrative element and the like the ways it's doling out dialogue and exposition like that would already be remarkable in the kind of like blockbuster state that we live in but it's also what i think is especially kind of noteworthy about this is that the actual like biggest action set pieces in this never really feel static there is always kind of motion to them they're almost kind of like broken up in little miniature movements in ways that i think are like especially compelling uh the one exception to that probably being the one nighttime bullet farmer sequence but that's solely because like that is just like a single vehicle pursuing them and then they kind of dispose of that and that's kind of as it is but like um in in so many of the other sequences the places that the characters exist in keep changing the circumstances that they're existing in keep changing the kinds of like di- power dynamics at play and like which vehicles position where what kind of strategic advantages there are there and it, it all moves so quickly that like as a viewer you don't really particularly pick up on this or notice this but it like it creates moments like um i'm, I'm surprised we like got this far without bringing this up but like um like still like 10 viewings in like the reveal of the sandstorm that's like right at the end of the first act is like still one of the most like miraculous things that has just happened in film ever um and it's purely because uh it's so fucking clever how they pull it off because the entire thing is nux at that point is driving backward and so you've got this entire view of like the rest of the the war party in pursuit and then it's he swings the car around and then you realize it's there which is like such a clever little like visual thing i didn't even think of that god the 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 entire visual like palette completely changes up. You get like, all, instead of these like very vibrant, saturated, like warm orangey earth tones, you get this like very dark muddled, like orange, just sandstorm that's consuming all of you and these like lightning flashes. And it's, it like is just really kind of a, a literal jolt to the kind of visual energy that that sequence has. And really kind of, you feel the grandeur of that entire moment because it is such an arresting thing that breaks up the visual language of everything else that's happened in that sequence so far. And it's, to me, that's like one of the most demonstrable things about like how good and smart this film is at like constantly uh, expressing a sense of visual progression. Yeah. Well, and and that's such a great example because it's like, I, I think again, like maybe a lesser movie would sort of like, if the sandstorm is in a scene, like they would rely on the CG of the sandstorm or something, right? Or it would just be there. Um, whereas in this movie, they were so deliberate about like, okay, how are we going to introduce this to the sequence, right? It was like exactly the same way that the action sequences are like, there's not a wasted moment in those. It's like everything is about sort of like giving something its proper 
um, place. And it's like, well, if, if the sandstorm is important to the story, we have to make it visually important. We have to like demonstrate its importance using the camera. It's like a magic trick, right? Um, and it does such a good job of like communicating what you need to know. Um, Cody and I talk about this a lot, but like, I think that this movie is such a clinic for like how, how a movie can train the viewer to understand its visual language. Um, and it, this one accomplishes that like completely intuitively, right? It, it's like, you don't need anything other than what the movie is giving you because the movie does such a good job of giving you what you need, I guess. I couldn't agree more. And like, it is speaking very much to, we've been talking about how like this movie doesn't tell you anything more than you need to, than you need to know that, that, uh, excuse me, it like doesn't add anything extraneous, even though it is completely like at times pretty wild. There's a lot to take in. None of it feels like excess in a way. Um, it makes me think of like the Harry brought up sort of the, the politics of this movie, um, where like the time that we spend with the things that we spend that time with, instead of like, we keep bringing up that example of uh, when the war party is coming from the background and we're still just like set here with Furiosa and Max sort of like, yeah, getting legs up on each other and whatever. And it's, again, we're not getting a whole lot of, we're not getting some interior shots of a war party car or of uh, Norton Joe's rig or whatever. We're just getting time with these characters. That's like, it is a, a choice definitely to spend that with them instead. And it's speaking to me to like the, the idea, even like broadly thematically that Furiosa tries to run to something. She tries to run toward, you know, redemption toward the green place. Max is trying to run from something, the trauma of the lives you couldn't save. The wives are trying to find liberation, etc. And the movie is trying to like find ways to tell you there is no running from that thing. There is no front running to that thing. There's only like what's in front of you. What is, what is there? Like, the citadel is there that is a center of power that is what you should be gaming to like overtake like you said the sort of uh directly commentary on on fascism is not is not subtle in this movie um but like the ways that it inspires that hope to to change things to like control is i think spoken through both the larger story and the character interactions and like i'm trying to it's clumsily trying to elucidate here those moments where instead of really cutting and going crazy between uh, multiple vehicles or showing us Joe's perspective and the bad guys plotting and all this kind of stuff, we're instead just spending time with mostly Max and Furiosa. Yes. But also broadly like the group to say that it's not done alone to say that like the only, only reason uh, Max has like left hope, hope is a mistake, et cetera. The only reason that he's left it is because he's been trying to do it by himself because he recognizes that there's like no community of one. Right. I don't know. It just the whole movie in like this is revealing to me ways in which the movie sings that I hadn't really considered before. Like I can see these things as silos, but knowing what everybody said here, it's like, oh yeah, there's actually a lot of overflow into from this bucket to that bucket to this bucket to how it looks, to how it moves, to how it, you know, it's narrative themes and stuff. It's just good conversation, everybody. I don't mean to bring to a halt like that, but um, good work. Yeah, uh, just real quick, I like. I think I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but that is that's getting at the heart of what I really love about this movie's message. Right, is this idea that like both Furiosa um, and Max they're they're trying to escape from something, and like there is this sort of like. Um, this uh, through line throughout the movie about like purity or about preserving something and about how redemption is returning to this sort of like unsullied state, quote unquote, right? Like Furiosa wants to sort of like erase her trauma uh, and Mad Max just kind of wants to like 
run away from it uh, and like return to this state, right? Like the green space symbolizes this state before that maybe they can return to, right? Before the the world was ruined, right? Like the the characters are always saying who ruined the world, right? And the idea is that like, oh, like we can get out of this ruined world. We can enter a different place. We can preserve our own sort of purity, right? Like even the sort of like virginal symbolism of the mothers um, represents that. And I really love that at the end of this movie, they realize that like, that's not, that's not it, right? Like there is no escaping. There is no running away. Like what it means to survive, what it means to be redeemed is not to undo uh, your traumas. It's not to like, a return to a state before it's to confront those things and move through them and uh, return to the fight, right? Like the fight is all there is. The earth is all there is. And to survive means to take up that fight, right? Like not to run away from it, not to try to like escape from it, but to return to that. Um, and I just think that like, what a great message that is right like especially for for a movie that earns it the way that this one does um in a movie that makes you feel for these characters the way it does um like they they do that without sort of like like furiosa has such a great character arc and she learns so much from max and vice versa without the movie ever like looking down on either of them or chastising them for their decisions like it's such an empathetic movie in uh on top of everything else and i i think that like that shouldn't be overlooked how successful that is um as well yeah, uh, I do want to continue on this thread. One thing that I wanted to point out quickly, because we do keep bringing it up, the the idea that, like, the film is smart enough not to show the kind of, like, uh, people in pursuit uh, is, to me, one of the... It, it's the product of uh, one of the film's best strengths that we haven't talked about, which is just, in general, it's, like, sound design and sound mixing are just, like, impeccable. And, like, for that, one of the key things that works is, like, the first time you see the war party setting out, you have the like grand reveal of like, Oh, there's this one vehicle where all these guys are drumming. And then you have the, the reveal of the doof warrior, this giant, like just formidable force of a guitar player who shoots flamethrowers and has no eyes. Um, uh, which, um, that, that is like, a just an incredible image that it's just immediately like indelible. Like I, that is like the one thing that like rightfully so like, when the movie came out, it was just like, everyone was like, you see that fucking guitar player? Like, on, on the, <laughs> you shoot the flamethrowers? That's, that's sick. The one in that's the onesie, metal. in the prospector onesie? <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, what, what that does is it, um, I, I think there are lots of like little moments where the sound mix is like great. I'm specifically thinking about like anytime Max frees himself from something, there's like usually a little kind of like sound cue of like, it's just kind of like, it feels like something is like lifting off of his shoulders essentially. Um, and there are also the moments where like uh, when there is the exposition, like the, the few moments where like, it's like Max and Furiosa talking with one another. It's like the moments where like the mix kind of like drops out and it's just kind of, leaving them this space to talk and that that's kind of your cue would be like okay this is actually like important information you're going to need to know to pick up for when we start throwing things back at you in like barrage mode again um but like the one of the key things for me is that like in those moments where it's like the war rig itself is stopped and you have some you have the party behind them in pursuit you're still hearing that like war party music going off like distantly in the background and so it presents this kind of 
it feels like a constant looming threat whenever you do hear it because you're like, oh shit, they're there and they will be there in minutes unless they like get moving or unless they like make their way through this thing that's about to happen. Um, that said, I do want to, uh, just because I, I've definitely been talking a lot about like the, the very sort of technical elements of this, I did want to like drop in my two cents about just kind of my own sort of like reading on things and kind of like the way that the, the, the movie I think is presenting itself ideologically. Cause I, I really don't have much more to intelligently say uh, a lot, like on top of what Harry and Jason especially have like already said on this, on this territory. But I do think there's something to be said about like the way that the movie does arrive at that kind of moment of reckoning for Max and Furiosa. It comes after this like very pivotal moment where like Furiosa has like her moment, her like breaking point, her moment of anguish. And she like, drops to her knees and the way that the film is depicting that moment, it looks like she's like on the edge of the earth, the way that the sand is kind of like spilling out. It, you like, even before you hear her attempted solution to like keep running, you get a visual sort of marker that like, she knows she's at like the end of the world and that there's nothing else out there for her in this direction. And it becomes this almost kind of like very astute visual cue as to like, where the character is if she continues on this path that she's going through. And that's that's why I think the kind of way that it positions it in the immediate aftermath, where she's more content to drive through this endless salt field than, like, consider the possibility that there is something to be gained, some kind of redemption to be found uh, from going back and taking what's rightfully hers. Um, it, it, that, that That is all of these things are so clearly expressing like that particular point in the narrative and the character arcs. And it becomes a thing where the, the thing that is what causes Max to himself, like change his mind is like when he is confronted by like a vision of his past that he can't shake away or that he can't run from. Cause every other point in the movie, he's either running away from it and they're running toward him or it just kind of suddenly stops him and like uh just like drops him to his knees and that's like the one point where it's like he's confronted by it he faces it and it's i don't know there's so much like little moments of like character motivation harmony on top of all of the different elements of like technical harmony that we're talking about that i think really feed into all the kind of like larger things the movie is saying yeah what a piquant observation too about her at the edge of the earth essentially like the way that it's framed with the peak of the dune that she's sitting on it makes me think like, it, it's really the, it's really something to say that like uh, of all of the shots in this movie that's that has always been one of the most memorable to me it's right beautiful. and it's like you would not think it would be because it's like for all of the like craziness that's in this movie it's like that's like one of the more conventional shots yeah. right it, but it, it is like western majesty it's it's an it's in, an amazing like in fucking incredible yeah and it like makes you think like the movie begins literally the fire and blood scene is with max on the edge of a cliff that he then has to go down to start the movie like not to say that there's anything thematic there but it's just like the recurring motif of like something that i suppose like she reaches the end of her journey at the edge of the earth that she could tumble down he begins his at the edge of like you know, right on the edge of almost dying. His world is literally about surviving and killing a lizard because he doesn't have food. I don't know. It's 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 a beautiful movie. It's wonderful. Um, I will open the doors for any last final points before we get to our closing segments. We now have what I'll consider our two. Got some positive feedback on a new segment from our last episode with uh, with uh, Abby Phelps on our episode about War of the Worlds. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to open the door to any final thoughts regarding the actual movie itself. And it looks like Cody's got a thought before we start. Yeah. Yeah, I got one. Um, very important shout out. I was, 
<laughs> I was looking looking it up to make sure it was Rictus Erectus, who was the one who took a glass of milk and like gave the thumbs up. I was like, mm, good. In my in my search just a few moments ago to make sure that I had the character right, I stumbled upon a Tumblr post that is just a screenshot of Rictus Erectus drinking the milk. And the text on the image says, you know that bit when Rictus Erectus drinks some mother's milk and then says something? Everyone in the fandom seems to think he says moo. And it pisses <laughs> oh, bro, me off bro. so goddamn much. Thoughts? My, is that a thing? My sub- you think I, this, said- was the, this was the first ever time Tell I me. watched this movie with subtitles. He does. He says, and he no, says no, no. And he, like, he says it in, in this like confirmational tone where he like he like drinks it and he sort of nods and then he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell if this yeah, is better you know, or not. No, it absolutely is what happens. I'm loading up the movie on I, my desktop <laughs> right now. I'm. I didn't think I learned something new on on the podcast here. Something like after moved. already thinking, I learned all there was to relearn last night. It's, so. Oh my god, because that, so that, that shot is, is <laughs> that shot is perfect, even without knowing that he says moo, because it is just the most absurd. <laughs> he's drinking mother's milk and just like approvingly, like the rations. I thought the he, rations said he said moo. <laughs> That's what's so funny about it, right? Is that like you think like your brain hears him say good because he says it in this like it's a like, normal thing to like say. Like he's confirming, like yes, oh this god, is me. Oh my god, he, he does. Me. Oh my god, I just watched it again. He does. I thought he said good. What the fuck? How does he know moo? Like what history man? Yeah, they don't, what they don't even have cows anymore. What the fuck? That's like just a cultural thing, I guess. That's like this is down. a five and a half star movie. This is uh-huh. beyond. Oh my god. Uh, Speaking of subtitles adventures, this is not (laughs) nearly as exciting, but I would like to say that I um, had never noticed before that Nux, when he's talking about feasting in Valhalla, what he actually says is that uh, he is awaited and they will all be Mick feasting in Valhalla. Like literally the uppercase M, lowercase C, like McDonald's. So I guess the War Boys are just trying to get some Mickey D's. I mean, if anybody can empathize. Which like, yeah, honestly, I get it. I get it. This is breaking me. This This is all of... All of this is. I made it so far. I, I don't know what to do with this information. I thought I knew everything. Yeah, I'm, I'm adrift now. <laughs> I am. Um, um, I did want to. I did want to make one quick shout out please. before we moved on, which was that uh, I do want to shout out and direct people to uh, Finn's Perisphere piece on uh, the movie, um, uh, the art of the car crash. Uh, I know that uh, she put a lot of like time and effort into it, and it's a great read. And I think it's an entire different angle on this movie that we didn't really cover which i know that like that's just kind of how it goes with fury road is that like no matter how much discussion you have somebody is going to have something else Mm -hmm. to talk about with it that you might not have considered or had time to get to so i wanted to just shout that out for people who uh maybe necessarily like we're looking for more of that in this discussion i think you'll really enjoy it yeah thank you for bringing that up uh finn odom did author that piece for perisphere the trilon blog you'll find it in the show notes um i read it before we started recording it is about uh how generally the car accidents and crashes in this movie do impact the narrative but one in particular how it really like moves the story forward how it like recasts uh, character motivations how it really changes the flow and feel of the movie from there so Go check it out, show notes, and at trilon.org, you can find the Perisphere blog through their menus. Uh, we have one uh, segment before our final. Um, I didn't prep anybody this time, so apologies. Maybe we don't come up with, mu- up with much, but it's a whole segment called uh, Good Grief, Give Me a GIF, uh, where I want you guys to tell me what 
you think should be the gift that we put out with this episode. I got some good play last time and a great gift that we ended up making. Um, so know that whatever you make here or whatever you tell me here, going to end up as part of a Twitter thread at some point. Um, so nothing embarrassing, not the shot where Max comes all over the screen. We can't put that one. That's a little too obscene for our audience, but anything shy of that mm. is good. Um, I think I saw Aaron's hand up first. I apologize if I'm I, wrong about that. Yeah. Could we do uh Morton Joe's face getting ripped off, but like a third speed? Yes. You know what I mean? I was planning on just, that. V- just very, just very I'll slowly AI and to add in frames between them. So it's even more grotesque. Ex- Isn't that horrifying? Exactly Isn't right. that yes. disgusting? He looks like a clay. Like you remember yeah. celebrity death match. It reminded me of celebrity death match. It's just the goriest, grossest thing. Well, I thought you were talking about AI. Uh, <laughs> the movie. You're talking about that scene. Ah, okay. Yes. Yeah, um, that that is very satisfying. And I, I was literally like, as we were, as Abby and I were walking into the theater last night, I was like remarking, like, it really rocks that like, that is the the one moment that the film reserves like that level of violence for is just like, you just want to see this motherfucker's face get like torn clean off. Mm-hmm. Um, perfect. Um, I'm I so I did not know that this was going to be a recurring segment after last time I was prepped that this was a thing last time because I had heard of it from Abby. Um However, um, I don't know. I'm struggling to think of it. My thought is like Im- immediately toward either uh, the the aforementioned very Keaton esque uh, war boys out the the door toward the beginning, and one of them like basically falling to his proposed like supposed demise. Mm-hmm. Or um, I'm also very partial to um, the the bullet farmers uh, scales of justice pose and j- j- gunfire, so which good. is just. It's one of like the greatest images of this movie, which is saying something considering how just like batshit so much of it, the rest of it is. Doesn't he? Doesn't he? He's like points his gun and starts shooting. He's like, is he? Does he say "Sing, Brother Glock"? Like he says the brand name of the gun. I think if I remember from the, my times watching, again, the I'm learning so much new. It is so fucking um, cool. He is so fucking cool. Um, I think I'll have to go. And apologies, Jason, I didn't pull a timestamp this time, but I think it's in the uh, the final climax when they're going back to the Citadel, and I think it's the um, the people eater. His like the gas guys uh, car explodes. It's um, Max is like ripped off of the uh, the war rig, and he's coming back, and like he's on one of the poles that swings by, and he's going up in the air, and he like goes over, and you can see the entire battle sequence mm-hmm. as the car explodes, and it's just like you see it as he just sort of goes whoop, and like the camera <laughs> just like shows him like pass by it, and then he's back on the war rig. Um, one of the most silent movie shots in this movie. Yeah, it, it fucking rocks. It's so awesome, uh, and I, I've always been a huge fan of that shot. It's a it's a very good one. That was actually that was going to be my a number one choice. Um, the I get the next shot that I I think thought of next is maybe the most or like one of the more confrontational shots that like the movie has with the viewer, and that's towards the beginning as a Morton Joe is realizing that um, the Imperator has taken the the wives away and he enters that room and it's that that old I don't know if she's a wife but that woman holding like the shotgun right like right at you like right and then in the background on, on the wall it reads you know, we are not things pretty oh, old wife thank you um pretty good shot <laughs> one, one that i uh <laughs> that i uh that i think of. and th- like right after that you get the i mean there's wording on the wall that i can't remember but then on the ground just like our babies will not become warlords or, or whatever it says um really uh, we're, we're only in that room briefly but there's a lot of good it's constructed really well and we get some really great shots in it so that would have been my second sort of collective shout out nice Not the the, good the thing ab- the thing about fury road is you could really pick pretty much any shot and you wouldn't be wrong i knew i knew like 
I did mean to prep everybody, but like I knew that if there was a movie where you don't need a reminder of like think about how this movie. I mean, looks, we could it's even just movie. like I think that uh, like it's a famous uh, GIF now at this point, but like just Mad Max giving the old thumbs up, like oh, what a great moment that is! <laughs> what what a good yeah, contrasting rocks. energy moment. Um, that's bait. That's bait. Uh, for reference, uh, Cody, that character's name is Miss Giddy. It is the teacher of the of the wives. Um, she's one of the history people. She, actually, the history of the world is, is tattooed on her body. Not to demystify so, too much of this movie. So presumably, she she taught Rictus what moo means. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> presumably, uh, she she has one of those speak and say things. <laughs> oh man, that is gonna stick with me. Uh, I'm I'm glad I make a podcast now. I'm I'm now once again glad that I make a podcast. Uh, well, that was good grief. Give me a gif. Check out the tweet to find out which one we end up using. Um, you'll see all of them later on in a thread, but that'll go out with the episode. Uh, we have one final segment. Uh, Natalie, you've helped us ring this in before, um, but Harry's going to lead us in a chorus. Yes, it is a segment that we like to call <gasps> Cody's Cody's. Wonderful. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that, uh, I don't know, maddening introduction. High octane, perhaps. Ooh. Ooh. Mm, vroom, vroom. That, that uh, introduction got my engines going. Um tiptoeing past that today we will be uh, experiencing a little segment i like to call mad maxes mad maxes what i'll do is present a series of prompts related to some of cinema's greatest maxes and after each statement i will ask y'all in alphabetical by first name order to respond you will get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer and the person with the most points at the end will lose no i'm just kidding they'll win as always trivia mafia rules apply here so use your noodles uh your noodles rather not your googles and uh let's uh let's go ahead and jump in we'll start with Maximus Decimus Meridius from the film Gladiator, uh, Ma- Maximus, Max for short, I'm sure his poker buddies call him Max. Maximus was played by Russell Crowe. How tall is Russell Crowe, Aaron? Oh, fuck, man. Um, how, how uh, you know, I, I can see Russ- It's not ready. It's just like, it's there's something about like the the way that Cody kind of leads into the question very nicely and then hits you with a, how tall is Russell Crowe? <laughs> boom. Uh, also, yeah. Also Russell Crowe. I could see him being a tall King. I could see him being a short King. I have, I, you know, uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. Russell Crowe is five, eight. I'm going to say he's, he's maybe a little shorter than you might expect. Five, eight. All right. Five, eight. Locking that in for Mr. Grossman. Uh, Harry over to you next. How tall is Russell Crowe? You know, Maybe you call me a coward. Uh, I'm going to go with six feet even. Um, just playing the safe odds, I guess. Coward. Well, six feet even. Uh, all right. Now nah, I, I got that in. Uh, Jason, let's see where you take your guess. How tall is Russell Crowe in your eyes? I saw the nice guys. Good movie. I'm going to say six one. Six foot one inch. And Natalie, where's Russell Crowe falling on that yardstick for you? I'm running out of ways to ask the same question. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm of a couple different ways like Aaron, but I think I'm going to, I'm going to use this one as my safe bet. I'm going to say 5'11". 5'11". Uh, going off a few sources on the internet, as I always say. So reportedly, allegedly, Russell Crowe is reportedly... Six foot even, six foot zero inches. Russell Crowe, ah. the, the safe, the safe betting odds, living example. Um, there's something to be learned from this. Maybe 
Uh, maybe it's that he's a nice guy. Just kidding. I don't know him outside of movies. Maybe he loves he's maps. Not. I'll tell you that much. Loves to see how Does things he? relate topographically. <laughs> hmm. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'll take your word. That's real. That's not a reference. How about you? Oh, no, that that is a reference. What is that? There's a very famous tweet that he did where he said, Love maps. Love looking at them. Love to see how (laughs) things relate topographically. Well, no, that is real and a reference then. It's it's, it's both. Oh, it's both. He's a man who loves maps. He's a man who loves maps. And honestly, honestly, whom among us, right? Yeah, it's true. Really makes you think Uh, a a little bit. Shout out to you, Mr. Crow. Come on the pod. Uh, All six foot zero inches of you. Next, we'll pivot to Max Fisher from the Wes Anderson film Rushmore. This Max was played by Jason Schwartzman. Uh, How tall was Jason Schwartzman, motherfucker? Aaron, no, I'm just uh, (laughs) different angle. Uh, Who uh, Jason Schwartzman? Who is cousin to Nicolas Cage? Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, What is the age gap between Jason Schwartzman and Nicolas Cage as of, let's say, today. Um, so what is the age gap between these two fellas? Aaron, in years. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to get fucking sandwiched here. With, uh, I'm going to 13, 13 years. That seems too small. I haven't etched it in saying, concrete yet. I'm Do you want to go 13? 13, 13, no. Etch, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um perfect. Uh over to Harry. Harry, what is that uh that age gap there between these two guys? Well the the wild thing about this is it could be like four years or it could be like thirty six years. Uh I'm gonna go with like um Time is a flat circle. Nineteen go thirty go thirty six. Oh, nineteen okay. years. <laughs> 19 years. All right. Got that locked in. Jason, over to you. Uh, these two cousins, how far apart are they age-wise? I'm going to say... God. I'm going to say um, 15 years. Jason is going away. Jason to Jason. 15 you know. years. J- uh, yeah. The, the, the lob, the jam. Basketball. Natalie, uh, finally, your guess. What is, what is the age gap between those two guys? Hmm. I'm I'm thinking about uh just different films of theirs in relation to one another and where they were at different parts of their life. I'm gonna say eighteen. Eighteen years. Locking that one in. I'm surprised uh I'm a little surprised nobody went the uh, the five for fighting route and, and said a hundred years. I've only got remember, a hundred that one? years between me and my no. cousin. Yeah, between What's, that and Darude's Sandstorm, we have two very viable candidates for the uh, the end song of this episode. Jason, if you want to write, thanks, thanks for, pitching, um, for pitching all those, Cody. I appreciate your yeah, hard just, work. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm an idea. I'm an idea I'll guy. You as uh, Jason Schwartzman. Yeah. Oh, I don't know about that. Jason Schwartzman, who is the co-producer of this podcast, he was born June 26, 1980, and Nicholas Cage was born January seventh. 1964 for an age gap of 17 years <sighs> closest to 17 years uh, was Natalie. So Natalie gets the point. It is, uh, uh, yeah, a very, a very tight race. Uh, Natalie and Harry are both on the board with a point apiece. Aaron and Jason still waiting to get on the board. Uh, just gonna, I'm just gonna say it. The haters are going to come at me in the comments, but it's, it's still anybody's game. Uh, I'm I'm very brave for saying it. I think I just got it. I just got an email. I need to check uh, to the Trilove account mm-hmm. actually. So um, just just keep going. We get those. Uh, no, okay. I'm, I'm I'm not going to read it to you anymore. It's irrelevant. Maybe nobody checks material. That, so. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, shout out to Jason, who always checks the email. None of the rest of us do because we are cowards and we don't like interacting with folks. Um, but we do like interacting with points. And the only way you can get more points is if I read this next question. So for question three, we'll shout out Max Goof from the all-time great film, A Goofy Movie. Uh, so I wasn't quite sure. Uh, where I wanted to take this one, but I was reading up on the film's history and production, and I came Foot across... Foot size, yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, now nah, we're just doing <laughs> height again, fellas. How tall is Max Goof? No, uh, I came across the following anecdote, uh, and it reads as follows. The film's planned release on Thanksgiving 1994 was delayed to April 1995 due to the monitor that they were using to capture the film's animation having a single dead pixel forcing them to recapture a portion of the film again with a non-defective monitor. So they had to like recapture a portion of the movie again because of a single dead picture that ruined the whole fucking thing. In the form of a percentage, what specific amount of the film reportedly needed to be recaptured? This is, I just got to say, this is like Cody's noties on, on amphetamines. This is... You motherfucker! This is the most Cody noty I've ever fucking just, heard. <laughs> so many layers of abstraction here. I have to marvel at it. It's possible there's Thank not you. a single other person on Earth who knows this information in a manner that they could <laughs> just say it he, re- he really is like the closest thing that cody maybe the only person yes um i <laughs> what are you gonna fucking answer this dog what are you possibly gonna do dredge recesses of that brain of is, yours. i'll make i'll make it easier just to make the the uh, the answer pool more fine uh, we, we'll, sure. it, whole percentages we don't have to get into decimals oh thank you i was gonna go <laughs> oh wow yeah gee okay. thanks yeah <laughs> all right well thank For the you the nearest um, whole percentage <laughs> Uh, I, I will say, uh, 11%. 11% locking that one in. Uh, Harry, over to you. Where, where do you, where do you fall on this one? Um, I think it would be funny if it was something comically low. So I'm going to go with like 2%. All right. 2% for Harry. Uh, Jason, over to you. What percentage do you think needed to be recaptured? 9%. Nine percent, and Natalie, Just, what say you? Oh yeah, I was Natalie, gonna go below eleven. Natalie, no. <laughs> I was gonna guess <laughs> way higher initially, so I'm That's going to guess twelve percent. No shit. Twelve <laughs> percent says Natalie. Uh, reportedly, three quarters of the film a Goofy movie needed oh, to be recaptured due to a single. That's got to be the largest one gulf dead between pixel. a right answer. And the actual, you know what I mean? That's got to yeah. be 75 per fucking cent. Yeah, we've guessed 12 was the that, highest. How does that work? I don't understand anything about movies. I, well, it's I, I would like to say and, that. And, and, and rendering and yeah, I don't know. Yeah, as, well, as, as those uh, words? What yeah. does that mean? <laughs> as the person who statistically does win Cody's noties the most, I do believe that having these numerical questions and me going first alphabetized is probably an attempt <laughs> to up. lock me out of Shut 2023 victories. I have a kick, kick, kick attendee button that. now. Sorry, continue. <laughs> we can go reverse order for the next one if Cody so so deans it. I'm, I'm confident. No, because then I'll still get it wrong. And then <laughs> who, uh, I'm just eating shit who got the point, point, Cody? Uh, oh, wait, Natalie. Natalie. She was closest, uh, 12 to 75. 12%. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, well, listen, if if rendering and recapturing animated cells is as easy uh, back then as it is today, I imagine they just had a faulty subscription to, like, Adobe Premiere Pro, and they just needed to, like, reinstall it running through. It should have just taken an afternoon. I don't know why it they took They kept hitting free months. trial uh, instead of enter code, yeah. and it just, it fucked the whole works. What, you're saying, what you're saying, Cody, is that if you had been there, things would have been different. <laughs> listen, uh... I, I not I, not to play armchair editor here, but um, listen, I think we know. I I, I would have turned that baby up by at least February 1995. Know what I'm saying? <laughs> April, get out of here. Um, all that is to say, uh, the point of that is that Natalie has taken a commanding lead uh, with a score of two to Harry's one to Jason and Aaron's zero. Um, I'm not going to say the thing that I that I normally say, but it is still anybody's game. For question four, we honor Max Shrek played by Christopher Walken in Batman Returns. And, you know, funnily enough, uh, a bit of a Venn diagram situation here. Max Shrek is not only a famous cinematic Max, uh, but he's also a a famous cinematic Shrek as well. Uh, And so my question for you all, between Batman Returns and Shrek, the first one uh, from the year of our Lord 2001, which one of the two films uh, has, or rather, you know, obtained the larger domestic gross adjusted for inflation so domestic box office adjusted for mm. inflation to you know current day dollars which one of those like two it. films gross yeah I'm, I'm i know how much y'all love box office questions so i really wanted to gussy this one up um aaron what do you think uh, is it batman I, returns or shrek that made more i actually do i actually do like the box office questions uh i yeah uh, i i will go the the adjusting for inflation thing is kind of messing me up, but I will go Shrek. All right. Aaron is going with uh, Shrek the Ogre, not Shrek the Max. So that's an important consideration. The green, yes, yes, yeah. that's correct. Right. I need to yeah, hear the, the Mike, yes. My- Mike Myers one. Yes. Uh, Michael Myers, excuse me. Mike Myers? The Mike Myers one. Uh, Harry, are you going with um, Shrek the Ogre or Shrek the uh, Max? Man, this is tough because it seems like Shrek is the really obvious answer. Which makes me think it's got to be Batman. Um, so I'm maybe I'm playing myself, and you can have a, a nice laugh at my expan- expense. But I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go with Batman. Alrighty, lock and Harry in. Um, no worry, uh, no worries about covering the spread now, Jason. The entirety of the spread has been covered, so you are now free to move about the country. Uh, in oh wow, you're wearing another. You're wearing the. the- Give the Christmas gift I got you. Look at that. Um, uh, that's very fun for our audio only listeners. Um, subscribe to our YouTube to watch the full thing. We don't have one of those. Jason, what's your answer to this question? I'm going to say Shrek the Ogre. One. Shrek the Ogre. Shrek the Ogre, comma, one. And Natalie, what say you? Batman or Shrek the Ogre? Uh, side, the, side note, Shrek the Max is a great band name. Somebody <laughs> should pick that up. Uh, but uh, I, I'm also a, a box office question fan. And if I remember correctly, I think this, uh, if I remember, was a subject on one of the previous episodes I was on. Maybe I cannot remember for the life of me. Or if I, Shrek specifically, maybe? If I, uh, Batman Returns. Um, oh, and I see. Okay. What, and whether or not... I picked up this information somewhere, but I, I'm sure... Something in my brain is telling me that Batman Returns box office was like way bigger than most people think it was, at least from like today's perspective. And like, given how inflation works in terms of retroactive box office, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Shrek the Max, the Batman Returns. 
Shrek the Max. You're right. That is that is a pretty solid band name. Um, and yeah, we did do. Uh, I think it was called Return Love. Uh, we did a bunch of like movies that had returns in them. So Batman Returns. Wow, Venn diagrams all over the place. Very wild. Um, but yeah, okay, we got the the guesses locked in. Adjusted for inflation, Batman Returns is domestic gross comes out to approximately three hundred forty million dollars in today's buckaroos. Shrek's adjusted domestic gross comes out to approximately four hundred forty-three million. Both of the both of the films did pretty well. All, all things considered, both respectable. Yeah, both pretty. I mean, I've never made four hundred forty-three million dollars, much less three hundred forty million dollars. Oh, so shit. Um, um, do we need to find another another host for next week or? Maybe is are you, are this, I don't know for money. Broke club, Cody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never made four hundred forty-three million dollars. The first yeah, four hundred forty-three million is the hardest. The hardest. Cody. Don't yes. worry. I, I'm, I'm told by I'm told by Jason. My check is in the mail. I turn out a, a lot of these segments, and I certainly don't do it for free. So I can't wait to receive that uh, next day delivery. Hopefully, um, so yeah. Hey, look at that. Uh, the the fellas who were not on the board yet, they got points. Everybody's on the board. This is great. We're, we're everybody's, um, so I guess I should say Aaron, Harry, Jason all got a point. Natalie's up to two points as we head into our fifth and final question. And we call upon with this one, one of the greatest Maxes of all. Uh, and that is Max Rebo from Star Wars Return of the Jedi. Um, now, for, yeah, for those unfamiliar, if you aren't, I'm sure it probably doesn't need to, I don't need to elaborate too much, but uh, Max Rebo, that's Max Rebo, you know, the Max Rebo band. Uh, he's the Blue Elephant you know, looking thing who performs a Jabba's palace again, return of the Jedi. He was a uh, male or Tolan. Don't know if I said that correctly uh, from Orto. And I wish I were making this up. He was a popular mu- musician of the jizz whaler variety. Um, a little fun fact. Uh, he mainly played the red ball jet organ. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, anyway, my question for you all <laughs> is, uh, so return of the Jedi is uh, we're going to station ourselves there. No more red ball jet organs. Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Music, Max Rebo, it's all coming together. The Return of the Jedi soundtrack. My question for you all is how many iterations of that soundtrack, the Return of the Jedi soundtrack, have been released over the years? So since the release of the film up to this point, Hmm. how many different iterations of that soundtrack have been released according to Wikipedia? Um, So that is okay i don't know why i felt the need to clarify that according to wikipedia you mean, jonathan wikipedia okay you mean like yeah yes. wikipedia by the way can suck it with their new menu bullshit you're right aaron that fucking shit oh it's bad. Oh, it looks like i gave them five dollars last now. month and this Absur- is what they fucking did well, with it you're not gonna do that's that again, what i did are you? um no now yeah. the, are we talking like when you say it, it editions or releases um are we talking like to the level of deluxe or just it had a u- new upc and they relisted it for like vinyl, either and or both. Okay, Jesus, like, yeah, oh, like, boy. like yeah, like restorations of those tracks, new tracks, the whole the whole shebang. I'm up. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I mean, I will say I just don't see it in George Lucas to like revamp or change things in one of those old Star Wars movies. So how many? You know, it's like one, two, maybe. Uh, right. I'm gonna go nine. I'm going to go All nine. Right. Aaron's going nine. Locking that in. Uh, Harry, over to you. How many iterations of the Return of the Jedi soundtrack fe- featuring the, the stylings of Max Rebo do you think have been When released? did that movie come out? Maybe we can do one for every year since release. Uh, no, I'm just going to do like 18, maybe. 
right? 18, comma, maybe. All right, got that one locked in. Uh, 18, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, Jason, over to you. What uh, what say you for this one? I'm going to say 25. I don't give a shit. Jason says 25. And uh, Natalie, the apparently the, the noted jizz whaler historian, um, feel free to get into that now or later. Um, I will also field your guess. Wherever you want to take this, you have the mic. Uh, I, I'll fine. I'll, I'll I'll mention this on air since it has apparently sparked a lot of intrigue. I was just, I was making uh, a very sort of like smart ass joke that I have like written uh, with an allusion to jizz whaling in one of the articles that I have written. Uh, it is it is uh, a term that was at one point by an interviewer applied to one of the members of Animal Collective to much confusion. Uh, bizarre hmm. bizarre thing that I found in my research for that like staring up centipede hurts thing. Um, Here's the thing is this is an inverse of like the previous uh, questions where I was going to guess way lower just thinking about how little uh, how how much it takes for like a piece of music to get reissued like how infrequently that happens and given that like Return of the Jedi is 40 this year so I'm going to uh, softball it because uh, I would have guessed lower I'm going to say eight. All right, Natalie is rolling with eight. The thing that I for- my guess. That's interesting. The, the thing just- that I forgot to mention is that um, because I got so entranced by all this this jizz whaling talk, is that whomever is closest to the actual amount will get four points. The second closest will get three points, then two points, and then one point. Uh, so hey, the good news is everybody's going to come away with something. Um, so you have that. To, well, that's to, nice. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. Is it? Um, is it still some te- of you will get more technically anybody's game? Uh, oh, it is. Well, as of right Not that now, we put it on guesses. No. <laughs> oh. As of this moment, where I am uh, tabulating in the background, it is still very much anybody's game. But in a few moments, it will most certainly not be anybody's game. So here's what I'm going to do: the tabulating is done. Uh, as of Sunday, when I last checked with w- w- Wikipedia, um, if it's different, um, you know what? Don't come at me. I'm sure it hasn't changed uh, because. Only eight versions and or remasters of the Return of the Jedi soundtrack have been released, uh, which is to say um, four points go to Natalie, three to Aaron, two to Harry, one to Jason. The scores reading in alphabetical by first name order, excuse me, Aaron concludes with four points, Harry with three, Jason with two, and Natalie with six points. So Natalie is the champ. Well done. This says, yeah, these, these have been, I should say, Witness, uh, w- witness Natalie. Um, these have been Mad Maxes, and this has been Mad Natalie. Um, Natalie, feel free to, to pop off um, if you have anybody you would like to, to thank or um, or mouth off to. Uh, the floor is yours. Oh, you know, there's there's so many people I like to thank the 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 war boy posse I came from, uh, the the many mothers, the Vuvalini, all the, all those good folks. Uh, no, um, you yeah, thank you again for having me on for. Uh, a movie as gargantuan and big as this it is an an absolute honor and like i know that we've only kind of as is like the case with any kind of like talk on fury road we only kind of scratched the surface of like what makes this movie sing and it's like no substitute for the real thing but it is a delight to come on to talk about something that like already is just proven to have like this uh wide array of things to talk about um i guess uh as always i'll uh plug my twitter uh natalie's not in it um 
I'll also plug uh, just because it's the most recent thing uh, Bandcamp profile that I did on uh, the band Angel Electronics, which is a uh, kind of like collab super groupy thing with uh, Ada Rook from Black Dresses and uh, Ashner, frequent collaborator. But um, yeah, uh, had a very fun interview with them, made a profile I really like. Their album came out today. It was it's a good time. It's a good time. And there was always more on the horizon for me. Great writing. Uh, wonderful to follow you. Uh, follow her at Natalie's Not In It. Thank you for joining for this uh, incredibly iconic and classic film already. It's not even 10 years old yet. And I know I'll remember it when I'm, I mean, if I have a brain when I'm 90, I'll remember that. Uh, thank you so much for being on, Natalie. Come back for, I feel like we could do a part two of this movie, but come back for whatever you want to for the rest of the, for the rest of the, however long we keep doing this podcast. Uh, let us know. And let us know, listener, if you would like to join for any episodes. We don't have enough of a listenership for me to be worried about saying that on the air. So get in touch with us at Trilove Podcast on Twitter or at Podcast at gmail.com if you'd like to see a movie or talk a movie, uh, talk a movie with us. Uh, otherwise, if you're cool to just uh, fucking ignore us and not keep listening, uh, go to trylon.org and see a movie there. Uh, they need your support. Uh, we don't. Uh, suck it. Find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Find us on, find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, in the words of great scholars that have come before us, Moo, uh, thank you, Natalie, so much for being here today, uh, this week. I don't know how to judge the phrase. We're recording today, but you're listening to it this week. Thank you for being here in our lives in general. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Through my actions, I honor him, V8. I've been Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. My name's Aaron. Uh, find me on Twitter at RBPlease. And I did not rehearse this one yet, so we'll see how this goes. <clears throat> My name is Max. My world is fire and blood. Once I was a cop, a road warrior searching for a righteous cause. As the world fell, each of us in our own way was broken. It was hard to know who was more crazy. Me. Or everyone else. <laughs>